Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. These gremlin type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers. Three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. All right, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. It is I, Adam, in uh, Studio B. And Serfiel, you're over there in Studio C, I guess we could call it now, right? Yes, live feed real time. Yeah, live feed real time. And we actually have a uh we actually have Rojan Razorwire on. He is the host of the Project Archivist podcast, and as we just learned, a very serious Rush fan. So Rojan, welcome to Conspirate Orwell. Flat by night, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Here. Yeah, seriously, thanks for having me here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Rogan. I mean, uh, it's been a long time coming, man. I've uh, I've been following your work for about how oh, man? It's probably been about three years. Oh wow! Now Thank at you. This point. Thank you very much. Uh, I first first heard you on Where Did the Road Go, uh, and we're going to talk about one of those stories that you actually talked about on there a little mm-hmm. later. But I understand actually, though, to get into it, you, I understand that you actually today witnessed a meltdown at Little Caesars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so I got to hear this. Story. I, had, I wanted to ask you about this. I wanted to get this on air because I saw you post about it, it on uh, it Facebook. It was one of those things. You know, I, I really wanted to pull my phone out and start videotaping the guy, but I don't think the guy would have reacted to it real well. We went into a Little Caesars and ordered some pizzas, very simple pizzas, three um, three cheese and pepperoni, a cheese pizza, and a veggie pizza with no cheese because one of my daughters is vegan. And um, from there, the situation – we were there for 45 minutes, I think, and the situation just got stranger and stranger as the day went on. There's The guy took our order, and he went to the back, and this other guy comes out, and his neck's all covered with hickeys and stuff. And, um, and and then uh, we're just, like, sitting around. I'm playing on my phone and stuff. And, wait. and this guy walks in. He's like, he's got a foreign accent. He's like, yes, I'd like to order a cheese and pepperoni $5 hot and ready pizza. So the guy proceeds, and he goes and he puts the order in, and then he starts doing stuff. And he, he ends up making, like, 10 pizzas and tries to sell the guy 10 pizzas. And the guy's like, no, 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 one, one pizza. And, and the guy's like, oh, dude, I thought you wanted like 10. And I'm thinking, okay, well, just give him one of the 10 pizzas that you made. And the guy made like deluxe pizza. They weren't even like cheese and pepperoni pizzas. So the guy's like, well, you're going to be waiting a minute, dude, because as you can see, we're like out of pizzas. Well, 
like Little Caesars is known for ha- that's what they call hot and ready. You walk in, you pay the five, six bucks, depending on where you live, and they hand you the pizza and you walk out the door. You know, it's the instant fast right. food of pizzas. So the guy's like, I uh-huh. don't got any pizzas. And then somebody else walks in and they place an order and it's just getting weirder and weirder. Then the guy just like starts throwing pans around the back room. And he's like, there's not enough pizzas in here. What's going on? And there's like, there's still the 10 pizzas standing there. So we're like, all right. And then somebody else comes in and they called and placed an order and their order wasn't ready. And he starts yelling at the guy in the back, where's this person's order at? I don't know. I made the order. It's not there. It's probably in the oven right now. And the pizzas are now backing up in the oven and they're starting to smoke because they're starting to burn. So he's flinging pizzas out of the oven. And knocking. What in the oh, world? It's getting weirder and weirder <laughs> and weirder. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, am I being punked right now? I mean, is there like... Is is because it was just really bizarre, and the guy was getting it was it was yeah he was like getting chameleon rayed or something you know I'm like is there like you know like electromagnetic <laughs> rays shooting through the glass and the guy's just getting weirder so finally the other guy comes up that guy goes in the back and the other like it looks like he's like a 13 year old kid he's not he's got tattoos up and down his arm but he looks like he's 13 years old he starts taking orders. And the guy in the back just starts shoving pizzas through. They've got this thing where you shove the pizza through the back and you open it out through the front and you pull it out through the front. And he's just shoving pizzas through and they're starting to fly out the front of it and they're falling onto the floor. And the guy taking the orders, not even paying, he's not even, he's like, hi, sir, may I take your order? Would you like to duplicize that for $2 more? And pizzas are just falling out. And my daughter's looking at me and I'm looking at her. And the other guy that ordered the one pizza that they tried to sell the tin to, he looks at me and we're all staring at each other like, what the hell's going on here? And it just got weirder and weirder. So then he's like, okay, and he looks at me and he's like, you guys, you guys, what what pizzas did you order? And I said, we ordered three hot and ready pizzas and blah, blah. He's like, all right, well, they're not ready yet. And I'm really sorry. This is unacceptable. It's been like 20 minutes now. And we're like, okay. Yeah, you know, and I'd already paid for them, and I'm like, all right, yeah, okay, we're 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 okay with that, just just chill. And then all of a sudden, pans fall over again. So now the guy is picking up the pizzas off the floor that the guy was pushing out of it, and the other two people that came in and placed their special, they just said, we're out of here. They left, they were gone, and um, you know, we hung it out, we stuck it out, and so finally, like the the one kid's picking up the pizzas off the floor, and the other guy's pulling the pizzas out of the oven that are burning, and the other then they flip flop again, and the kid goes back, and the other guy with the hickeys comes out to the front, and he gives the guy his one pizza, and there's still ten pizzas sitting there, and he's like, sir, and he looks at me again, he's like, your pizzas are still not ready, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take your names and your phone numbers, and I'm gonna give you some free food. And, you know, and he's pointing forcefully with his finger at us. And I'm like, do I laugh? Should I be afraid? Is this guy going to assault me? It's really, really weird. It's just getting strange. So finally, our pizzas come out. He's like, I'm really sorry that it was unacceptable. And I'm, gonna, I'm like, you know what, dude? Just give us a pizza. I'll, I'll have to whip one together. I'm like, why don't you give me one of the ten that's sitting over there from the guy that you tried to sell them to who only ordered the one pizza? That is a great idea, sir. And I'm going to do that right now. And I'm going to give you your pizza. And I'm going to send you on your way, man. <laughs> so. And my wife's texting, like, where the hell are you? It's been 45 minutes now. And I'm like, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> wow. So, it's weird. Like, we Reverse. do a show every year called Fast Food Follies, and it's all about people doing really weird flip-outs in fast food restaurants as the year goes on, all this crazy stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, my God, I'm in my own show right now. You know, I was... I was like waiting for Hunter S. Thomas to come out of the back room or, you know, and be like, oh my God, this is, this is a deranged pizza place. You can't be here. This, you know, it's, it's just so weird. 
So yeah, that was that was what happened. Like I, I really I couldn't have put it into Facebook fast enough how fast it was happening because it was just one thing after another. So cocaine's a hell of a drug, man. Meth maybe? Meth sounds more appropriate. Yeah, that that would be my thought, that would be my I guess. Thinking, yeah, hey, this guy's an ass or whatever. You know, whatever. It's having a bad day. It's Mother's Day. Probably a lot of pizza ordering pizzas. He's probably having a bad day. But when the pizza started flying out of the thing where you put the pizzas in and, and he's just shoving one in and the next one falls out, next one falls out. It, and it was like, and the guy ringing up the order is not even reacting. He's, he's just looking straight ahead. Like if I react, he's going to kill me. Can I take your order, sir? And we're all just sitting there looking like, are you, are you going to stop him from pushing the pizzas out? Nothing. Just, you know, yeah, I'll take your order. That was when it started getting really strange. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I was, <laughs> it was, it was just weird. I mean, I guess it was at, at worst, I got free entertainment and a free pizza out of it. You know, I got a 45 minute entertainment show with an extra pizza. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I wanted you to tell that story because project archivist is not kind of your normal run of the mill, uh, kind of paranormally themed podcast because you guys do talk about a lot of different kinds of material uh so i want to know about your idea for project archivist when did you start it uh, you know, what was uh, kind of the genesis of it what's the root of the name it all came about because um at a long time ago well god seven years ago now there was all of these i, I like everybody I, you know people get into paranormal a because they're fiercely interested in it or b they have a variety of experiences which drives them to get more into it. So I grew up watching things like In Search Of and all of the really cool shows and um, Art Bell, you know, all of that stuff. And um, then I discovered the world of podcasting and I really got into a show called Mysterious Universe. And from there I got into a show called Eerie Radio, a show called 13 Skulls and uh, Jeff Ritzman's old show, Paratopia. And um, slowly but surely these shows started to fade away mysterious universe had he had gone on he just up and quit because he was doing it by himself so he just stopped um and all of these shows just faded away there was one that stuck around which was 13 skulls and he was a pretty cool guy so i started um i, I was also sending content to ben over it at mysterious universe i would send him content constantly if you listen to the really old shows he'll you sometimes hear him mention my name so i started um bugging tj over the 13 skulls podcast and i was recording little segments for him called anomalous that were these little five to ten minute spits of just strange history and things like that and his show started coming to an end and he's like you need to do this on your own and right around that time, I ran into Lobo. I met him through Facebook on the 13 Skulls Facebook page, and me and him had actually gotten into an argument about the Shroud of Turin. And I was like, wow, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it wasn't so much that it was like, I believe this is a son of Jesus or whatever. I'm like, I was just pointing out that there are some strange anomalies about that particular fabric, that it's got a weird 3D imprintation on it. And there's just some really odd things about that fabric. And um, sure. eventually, you know, Cooler Heads prevailed, and then we went on to a now-defunct podcast, and we just both happened to be guests on the show that night, and we headed off really well. So um, I got a hold of him and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this show, and all of these people that were mutually interested are gone now, so there's kind of a void out there to fill this kind of niche of a, of a strange kind of show. 
And then through a variety of strange synchronicities, I needed recording equipment. Um, my buddy showed up to where I worked and said, hey, I just quit my job as a sound engineer. I've got a whole bunk, a trunk full of, you know, mixing boards and microphones and stuff. Do you need anything? I'm like, yeah. So, boom, nice. had that. And then uh, another buddy of mine was like, hey, I just bought a new copy of Adobe Audition. Here, you want my old copy? Sure, I'll take it. And then another buddy contacted me and said, hey, I'm starting up a web service company. I'll sell you web hosting for really cheap. If you're interested, and this all happened within a period of one week. So I'm like, all right, I, I know how this works. I'll do it. I got a hold of Lobo and talked to him a couple of times on Skype, and we ironed out the details. And we said um, we wanted to do a show, but we didn't want to do a show where we covered all of the usual stuff that's out there in paranormal. We really didn't want to talk about Roswell. We didn't want to talk about Betty and Barney Hill. We didn't want to talk about the Amityville Horror House. We wanted to talk about stuff that we were interested in because we had spent all of these years hearing about this other stuff. So we said, let's do a show the way that we want to. But since we don't know what we're doing, we're going to inadvertently end up copying everybody that we've that we've, quote unquote, grown up listening to, which we did for a while until we finally found our own feet. And that's how it all came along. And uh, he lives 2,000 miles away from me in Connecticut, and I live just south of Detroit, and we've been doing it ever since. I think I've met him in person twice, maybe for – I had dinner with him once, and then I hung out with him for 10 minutes before that. <laughs> so, Yeah, um, I, I think I got into it for pretty similar reasons. Uh, one of the shows that inspired me was a show called – Ghostly Talk, oh, yeah. which is actually up there in yeah, Detroit. Yeah, I, I, I used to. Uh, I think they're in. Uh, are they still around? I haven't heard from them in a while. Well, they they stopped doing it in like 2009, and then they came yeah. back. They used to uh, come out of a haunted winery, if I remember correctly, which I've been to. Yeah, that's what that's what they called it. Yeah. Uh, so you know those. Well, guys, I don't huh? know them, but I know of their show, and I did listen to them for a brief yeah. period of time. Um, the problem is, is overly, overly woo shows. I have a hard time listening to. Um, I'm kind of weird. I'm, I, I'm. I, this is going to sound very arrogant of me, um, but I, I'm, I'm, I am actually very much a skeptic. But I'm not, I'm not a denier. You know, I've, I've had strange events happen to me. So um, my opinion is is that yes, there is something going on, but I am very skeptical about a lot of stuff. I have a, a pretty strong BS meter. Um, I don't go very much into the woo factor. I tend to try to stay grounded as possible, but I'm not somebody yeah. who falls into a theory of well, the, you know, I'm not. I, I, there's a lot of theories that I believe fit the pie. I don't think it's it's all like a pie. There's different pieces of it. Yes, the extraterrestrial hypothesis may not be the theory, but it, it could be part of it. There could be something that's messing with our consciousness. Um, you know, the only thing I have a hard time with is possibly like like Bigfoot and stuff like that. I'm not a Bigfoot guy, but I'm not going to laugh at people who are Bigfoot guys unless you're Bobo or something like that. Um, you know. <laughs> Um, ghosts I, I have a hard time with, but I have had ghostly-like encounters. I have actually caught EVP. Um, and again, it sounds arrogant, but that stuff I have a hard time believing in unless I actually catch it myself. And when I do, I'm not somebody who's going to run and go, look, I have proof, I have proof, because there really is – hard proof is very it, – it almost doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, it's, it's I, I go through this – crisis of faith every couple of years you know where i'm like am i a skeptic or am i a believer where do i fall on the side of the fence on this and i don't like to track myself to much of anything and lobo is the same way because 
once you believe something and once you establish a belief, you get locked into that belief and everything that ascribes to that belief. It's like, well, okay, I am a Republican. Then you start to fall in line with everything Republican. I am a Democrat. Well, then you start, you know, it's, I kind of walk this weird gray area. And unfortunately, when you're right in the middle like that, you're, a lot of people you know, kind of hate you because you don't pick a side. <laughs> so that's a right. long answer, uh, but yeah. <laughs> for, yeah, the same here for me, and I think I don't. I'll speak for Surfiel too. I mean, if you feel the same way, that there's we're we're skeptical about all this stuff because it's just like there's so much of it that we found cool when we were like 15 years old that now we're just kind of like, uh, it's a bunch of BS. Yeah, but there's still this core of it that is still fascinating. It still keeps us going. Surfiel, yeah. I think you feel the same way. Well, yeah, and it's it's about the unexplained, you know, like you're exactly saying, really true believers, but not total skeptics yep. about the mysteries. Yeah, it's like like um, my buddy Eric, who you interviewed. You know, me and him were having a conversation mm-hmm. last week on another show. Wojo Houseski, yes, Eric Wojo. And we were having a conversation off the air. Maybe we said it on the air in the show that we are on, but he says, yeah, you apply Occam's razor to everything. Where for him, everything is very much a cut and dry kind of thing. Whereas for me, it's like, all right, Occam's razor works up to a point until it doesn't anymore. And the problem is, is that like Eric hasn't had any strange experiences and I don't know. I, I, I love the guy. He's really cool. And I've known him for a while, but I think if he were to have some kind of experience, I think he's one of those people that would probably just somehow or another try to explain it away because that's just the way his brain works. That's the way a lot of these people's brains work. Whereas when I've had extreme experience, I'll, I'll roll it around in my head for a while, but eventually I come to a point where I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to get an answer to this, so I, I got to move on for the most part. So, you know, it's just, it's one of those kind of deals where – you're either wired to try to understand or try to apply what you can to it or you're not. And Occam's razor is a good way to do it. But after a certain point, you start, you start looking for things to peel off that don't necessarily make sense. You try, you know, again, it goes back to the belief thing. Even if you're a skeptic, your belief is lack of belief. (laughs) Hope that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Personal experience can make you a better skeptic, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you get mm -hmm. to really get that inside view and, you know, apply that to other people's experiences. Yeah. Cause I've, I've had quite a few strange experiences and, um, the one that we're going to talk about, I, I could logically explain a lot of that stuff away, but I've had other experiences where I just have absolutely no, you know, there's a certain point where when something happens to you that you have a moment, and I've said this many times, you have a moment of disconnect where you go, okay, nothing else is applying here. This is not something that what's happening right now is not something that I can make fit into any kind of shell or anything that I understand, even from a laws of physics standpoint. So you have this strange moment of disconnect, which is actually the very, that's in my, in my opinion, that's, that's a very uncomfortable and very strange feeling that I wouldn't wish on anybody when you realize that reality is not working for you the way it's supposed to work. So what the hell is going on here? You know? (laughs) Well, before we get into the, the big experience that you have you had what's some of your other experience what's another oh, experience that you can kind of relate the most i take it it's numerous well it's probably not as much as soraya's well, though, but. okay one of my there's an evp experience this is kind of a funny story that i like to tell 
Um, back when I was, I'm 46 now, back when I was in high school, I was into ghost hunting. I, I read a lot of, I read Hans Holzer and I read a lot of, uh, of, um, you know, Fortean books. I had all of the Fortean books at one time from low all the way on up. And, um, back when I was in high school and I was into this stuff, I didn't tell anybody I was about it. Cause back then, you know, late eighties, you know, mid to eight, late eighties, very early nineties, you know, the only thing you had out there, you had shows like In Search Of that were kind of old at that point. You had like the movie White Noise and things like that. But you didn't tell mm-hmm. anybody if you were into this stuff because everybody would thought you were, you were a clown. Things have changed a lot since then. But um, there was me and my buddy. We went to a graveyard not too far from me, and we were walking around, and I had a small micro cassette recorder that um i remember i saved like the job my part-time job i was working i saved all this money and i finally bought this thing and it was at the time it was like i got like a micro recorder it was so cool i'm so spy you know and uh we went to the graveyard there's a, a graveyard not too far from me we went there and we just back then it wasn't like is there somebody here could you talk to us give us nobody did that you just put a tape recorder down and turned it on and and you know and just walked around and tried to get some voices or whatever you did so We'd been there for a while, and uh, I always recorded on one side of the tape. I would never use both sides. I would always use just the one because I was always worried about bleed through from the other side, which would, even back then, I was thinking skeptically. I was like, well, something could come through from the other side if the heads are misaligned, whatever. So I'm only going to record on one side of this tape. And we'd been there for a while, and it was time to go, and it was getting late. And uh, I looked over at my buddy and said, what time is it? And he you know, he said, it was, I got around 9, you know, 9, 15, 9, 10. It was starting to get dark out because it was summertime. So we left. And the next day, we're over his house, and I'm playing the tape, and we got to that part. We didn't hear anything on the tape at all until we got to that part. And very, very, we were the only two people in this graveyard. There was nobody else there. And very clearly and distinctly, before I asked my buddy, what time is it, a voice comes through and says, it's time for you to get a watch. So what you hear is, it's time it's time for you to get a watch. And then you hear me say, hey, what time is it? And my buddy says, 910. I'm like, all right, well, we should probably pack up and get out of here, you know, turn the recorder off. So we got back and we listened to it. And he was like, whoa, he's all flipping out because we got a, like a ghost voice is what we called it back then. And it didn't amaze me that we got a ghost voice. What really flipped me out was like I was going, how did it answer the question before I asked it? And he was like, that doesn't matter. I'm like, yeah, it does matter because does time work differently over there? And he's like, you don't understand. We got a ghost voice. And I'm like, yeah, obviously, I was a kid. I'm like, well, yeah, we were in a graveyard. You know, that's that's what you get when you're in a graveyard. You know, I wasn't so wigged out that we got a voice. What freaked me out was like, how did it answer the question before I asked? The next question I get is, do you still have the tape? No, I, I don't know what happened to the tape. This was years ago. But um, so that was my first encounter um, with something really bizarre that I'm like, what is this and how does this work? You know, and I, I well, you probably caught a radio signal or, you know, that there's all that stuff. But I, I really don't think what it, that was what it was. I got some kind of voice on that tape and it was really clear. It wasn't like... <laughs> watch you know it was you need to get a watch you know <laughs> there was no there, there was no like did you hear that listen to it again now listen to it again there, there was none of that it was very clearly I and mean, it was kind of like humorous saying it's time you get a fine for you to watch and i'm like okay number one it's a smart ass and number two it answered before i asked right. the question so <laughs> that's what i was gonna say too is he, you got a smart i just need to get a ghost you got a smart ass ghost back, I'm like, all right jerk let's have a conversation you know but I, I i don't think we ever did get anything more from that i did go back there a couple of times you know as as i got older and stuff and you know we went back there and hung out a few more times but no i don't think we ever got anything more um there was another weird situation that happened 
oh gosh, it was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, where me and the wife and kids were out front and we were unloading groceries from my minivan into the house. And then I had this very bizarre time slip. And of all the experiences that I've had, this was the singular most uncomfortable strange one that i've ever experienced and and the, uh, we were unloading groceries and then for whatever reason it was kind of just like time slowed down to a point where it was like i looked up and you could i could look over at the corner and it would be like there's going to be a red car coming down the street boom red car comes down the street a bird's going to fly overhead boom a bird flies overhead your daughter's going to walk up and say is something wrong with you and then i look over and she's like is something wrong with you and it was for this, it felt like it was five minutes, but I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was really quick, but it, it was very much like I was on a a roller, like a funhouse ride, getting to see what was going to pop out at you before it actually got to pop out and happen with you. And then everything Weird. just fell right back into place and it went normal again. And what was so uncomfortable about it was like it was it was the sensation of you're not in control of anything that's happening to you everything is going to happen to you whether you you think you had it was it was one of the things where it's like you really don't have free will you think you have free will because you're experiencing everything in real time but for those couple of minutes it was like i can't do anything to prevent or change anything that's about to happen it's just going to happen no matter what what i do you know it's like <laughs> it was it's difficult to explain and it was very disconcerting it was very like i just i just sat there and i, I was pouring sweat I, I was just sitting my heart was racing i was pouring sweat i didn't know what the hell was going on and then everything just kind of fell right back into sync again as normal and it, it was just bizarre and i was and it was like are you all right and i was like you know what do i say um i, I time just slowed down for me you can't you know what am i going to say to anybody i'm like no i just i just don't feel real well right now or whatever i just kind of sat there like contemplating it for a little bit it hasn't happened since thank god because really i mean i i've i've been buzzed by ufos i've i've seen weird stuff that was the most bizarre feeling sensation that i've ever had and i don't know what caused it's it. like the exact opposite it's like the exact opposite of missing time yeah it was pre I, I don't know I, I i call it experiencing things in real time like i i just hmm. knew everything that was going to happen before it happened as it was happening there's no other way for me to put it and it, it was like i've i can't I, I there's nothing i can do and even if i if, if i'm gonna reach over and grab that door handle i was gonna reach over and grab that door handle anyway can't change my mind and say i don't want to grab the door handle because i was going to no matter what this is that's well yes of course it sounds weird <laughs> <laughs> why am i asking you <laughs> Yeah, that is that is strange. And then everything just went. It just it, it just kind of fell right back into sync again. It was just like things got out of whack for a second, and then the tape caught up with itself, and it went back to normal. And it was like we're we're on a car, we're we're on a ride. You know, it was it was weird. So it was one of those things where it's it's put me. I don't like to think about it because it puts me into this loop of do we have free will or not? Is thing are things predestined? Can we change what's going to happen? And if by change, thinking that we can change what's going to happen, are we supposed to think that thing, we can change what's going to happen and we still can't change what's going to happen, even though we think that we can? And then, you know, it's kind of, when I saw The Matrix, I'm like, like there is no spoon. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's what to say. Yeah, it's like a glitch in The yes. Matrix. Yeah, that, that, so those, those are two off-the-wall experiences that I've had. Well, the main one I wanted to talk to you about 
was I heard that like I said I heard you talk about this on Where the Red Go a while ago. Black Dog Possession and, uh, thing. That's what you're gonna bring up. Y- yes. Yeah. Well, possession, but it's like possession in quotations. Um. Well, I'm gonna be 100 percent honest with you. I'll say before I tell this story, I personally do not remember any of this. I do remember okay. very vividly the dog, and it's very strange that you should bring this up. Two days ago. I had saw a Great Dane, and it immediately popped the memory back into my head of how big this dog was. But as far as the incidents that happened, everything was told to me secondhand from family members and friends of the family growing up. Um, As as for what it was happening, when it was happening, I don't remember anything of it. So the story goes, um, I don't remember the exact year that this happened. I know it was before I was going to school, so it was before preschool. And we lived in this farmhouse, not very far from where I live now. It was in a city called Romulus, Michigan, uh, right next to Metro Airport. The location, the house is now gone. It is now a defunct parking garage or a -a rent-a-car center or something like that. There's just a big vacant parking lot with a gate on it there. The house is no longer there. I drive by it all the time. Um, And we were living in this old farmhouse. It was me, my mom, and my uncle. Now, my mom had me when she was young. She was a partier. She smoked weed. She drank a lot. And she did a lot of partying. So uh, the house that we lived in, um, it was old, had old wiring. It was one of those houses where you'd get to and you got to walk up like a good uh, six steps and then onto a porch and then to the door. So it had like a foundation that was raised up uh, and the house was on top of that. So the windows were up at decent height. We had this dog Um, I'll just call it a dog. It was a dog thing uh, that lived on the property around the area. And it was very big. It was as big. um, I always say for size reference, there used to be this dog called Gibson. It had the world's record as the world's largest Great Dane. And you can go look it up. It was on Oprah Winfrey. Like when this thing stood up, it would put its paws on your shoulder or whatever. This dog was pretty much equal to that size. It looked kind of like... If I had to describe it, it was definitely a black dog, which a lot of people are like, oh, it's a black dog. You saw a black dog and this legends thing that yeah. go along with that. The front of it was very – it had a mange very much like a, um, a German shepherd, uh, if you will. And the hair kind of tapered off and became more like a Doberman towards the back or more like a Great Dame in the back. So this very well just could have been a very big mongrel crossbreed dog. But – this dog would come in and we had chickens and rabbits and things and this dog would come in and always like try to kill our chickens and our rabbits and it would cause problems and it would come up like in the middle of the night and it would put its paws it was it was if it stood up on its hind legs it would be able to put its paws on like the windowsills and stuff like that it would look into the windows at night it would really creep the hell out of you uh, you know because the windows are sitting fairly high up you know you had to walk up to a porch to get into the house so this dog would sit up and sit in the windows and stare at you it didn't really have any fear and uh what was that i'm already scared so i do remember i do remember seeing the dog i very vividly remember that much of it and we would see this thing all the time we would come home from grocery shopping there was one time we came home from grocery shopping and it was in the driveway and you'd pull in and it wouldn't move it'd be like yeah come at me bro you know and it would just you know, and you're like, okay, well, are we going to get out of the car and try to attack the demon dog? No, we're going to wait till the dog tries to go away or whatever. And it would eventually take off, but it would come up and it would rip our screens out of our windows all the time at night. And it did have the hauntingly red eyes when you shined a light on it. That's not that uncommon. You have a lot of animals that have eye shine. So that wasn't that. Pivotal. Sure. Dogs and cats both. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So anyhow, 
there was uh, moving ahead in the story now. There was a particular night that my mom had some friends over and I had gone to bed. We had the living room. You would walk out of the living room and then you would walk into the, the hallway, would go to the left and to the right. To the left of it was my mom's room. Uh, slightly to the right and ahead on the left would be uh, at the end of the, the other end of the hallway was the bathroom. And then you had my room, um, which would be to the left of the bathroom. Now, this was also weird. This comes in the story later on. I don't know why, but again, my mom was a hippie. There was, you know, those carpet tiles that you can buy and put them down on the floor. Well, for whatever reason, my mom, being the stoner that she was, had these carpet tiles going up the wall over and down the top around the bathroom wall and going down. We'll get into that later. Okay. That's the reason why. <laughs> So my mom was going to the bathroom, and she heard me in the bedroom, and she was going to open the door and say, you know, get your ass into bed, because she thought I was up playing. She opens up the door, and she, and here I was standing in bed. She clicks on the light, and the first thing she notices is that I had wet myself, and she starts yelling at me, like, get to bed, why, why go to the bathroom? You know, she was just flipping out, and I wasn't paying attention to her. I was staring out the window. So she said she looks over across the window, and there is the dog thing in the window staring into the room. And so her reaction, she threw a beer bottle, and the beer bottle bounced off of the windowsill, hit the window. Not the window, the screen, I believe. Um, different stories, I've been told either the screen was open or the screen was closed. I don't remember. So she got the dog to take off and run away. So she's like, change the sheets, get, you know, get your pajamas, whatever, get to bed. And she was flipped out, closes the window, and I wasn't really acting right. So the next day I wake up, and... I start, I'm not acting normal at all. She says, I'm acting very, very strange. And everybody else in my family has also confirmed this. My grandmother, my uncle, my aunts, cousins, um, all of these people have confirmed that, yes, I was acting very weird. And I'm like, well, define weird. And they were like, did you ever see the movie The Shining? Of course, you know. And they said, you were acting like that little kid in The Shining when he was walking around saying red rum. You weren't, you know, I wasn't talking like this, but I was acting very, very peculiar and strange. To the point where they had to start hiding the sewing needles and sharp-edged items because I would take the needles and I would poke my fingers and make my fingers bleed and I would finger paint on the wall with blood. And I wrote on the wall and one time, which made my grandmother go nuts, my grandmother was Lutheran, so my grandmother lost it. And I wrote on the wall, our souls are food. Now, (laughs) I wrote on the wall, this is what I was told, I wrote our souls are food. And... Um, which I found peculiar, and um, the my my little buddy of my, was the cat, and I, me and the cat were the me and the cat were buds. Cat wouldn't go near me, and for it lasted for about a week. My peculiar behavior, I would take like my mom had made a bowl of um, spaghettios, and I, I said something like, "I refuse to eat this," and I grabbed it and just dumped it over my head and threw the bowl across the room. Very unusual behavior for a child of that age. Um, so there was a time where uh, that week that my, my the cat wouldn't go near me. The cat wouldn't go near me. It was acting weird. I was also told that the lights were flickering on and off in the house. Uh, they were having problems with the phone where the phone would ring and you'd pick it up and it'd be really loud, ear-piercing static. Um, my aunt told me that story because she was trying to make a phone call, and um, it had something to do with I was getting angry about something. Um, I, I This is going to sound weird, too. Um, I used to watch, because we live very close to Canada, and at the time they used to show Sesame Street, and they would show Sesame Street in French and English. And I was learning to speak French and English at the same time, and my mom used to get mad because I would talk in, and I would talk in French, because Canada's across the river from us. And she'd like, speak in English, and she would get mad and turn it off, and I would start screaming back at her. I would start screaming words in French. And 
my aunt picked up the phone because it kept ringing and there'd be loud ear piercing static coming through whatever so back to the cat story uh, the cat's acting weird my uncle goes to the bathroom walks in the bathroom takes a leak or walks out of the bathroom the cat had ran up the carpet tiles on the bathroom and just ran up the top of the bathroom door so my uncle comes out and the cat just drops down and like shreds his back up with its claws you know it starts going nuts <laughs> so yeah. and you know i look back and i'm like why the hell were there carpet tiles going around the bathroom or whatever my mom was a hippie so this stuff just kept going on and on and on and my uncle also was a motorcycler, and he had a Joe's Hog Harley that he was outside working on. And he saw this dog again, and finally he just got tired of it. Because what it would do, if it saw you, it wouldn't want to, it would like come up and challenge you. And what it would do is when it, it would run until it got close up to you, and then it would rear up on its hind legs, and it would take a few steps and go down again. And it would do this really bizarre charge, which is very uncharacteristic for dogs. Dogs normally don't do that. But this thing would stand up kind of like a dogman or a werewolf. Now, I'm not saying it's a dogman or a werewolf, but it did have a very – that was one of the things that I remember about it. Because when my mom would see this thing, she'd be like, get in the house now. You know, She was afraid that this thing would attack us because it really didn't have any fear of us. Um, doesn't explain much. Dogs with rabies do these kinds of things. But they don't stand up on their hind legs and charge forward. This thing would stand up on its hind legs. It would get a, it would get a nice little run going. And then it would kind of stand up on its back legs and get a little bit of a gait where it would just kind of lope along. And then it would drop down on its front paws again. Kind of like a bear does, if that makes any sense. Um, so it would stand up on its back legs and do this. My uncle eventually just got tired of it, and he went in the house and grabbed a twenty two and he says he shot at it, and he's pretty sure that he winged it in its back rear quarters. The dog took off into the woods, and that was the last really anybody saw of it for after that. And um, huh. after that, I guess I just kind of chilled out and turned back into a normal little kid again, you know? And now I don't remember any of the 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 possession stuff. I don't remember the lights getting dim or anything like that. Now, most of this I can explain away through the quote-unquote Occam's razor skeptical angle. Um, old house, bad wiring. Lights flicker all the time in these houses. Again, phone problems, whatever. As far as me acting strange, my mom was a partier. She had me when she was young. She was very young. Uh -huh. She had many boyfriends in the house, smoked a lot of weed, drank a lot. This very well could have simply been a small child reacting to the environment that I was in. You know, it was not a normal household. Yeah, you know, when your mom has all kinds of boyfriends and she parties all the time and she's too young to have a kid, children react. Now, the cat, I don't know about the dog. It very well could have just been a mongrel dog hanging out in the area. It could have had rabies. It could have just, you know, it's, it could have just been a wild dog. Because I have gone back over the years looking through the newspapers and local legends to try to find anything that I can that had to do with any kind of experience with this thing. And I have not found anything in the old newspapers pertaining to any kind of a sighting of this dog or anything like that. Um, it, that doesn't necessarily mean anything either. So, but it's a strange story. And I, and when I've talked to people in my family for years and years, nobody would really talk about it. They would, my uncle would make jokes every once in a while. He'd be like, you better behave or I'm going to, I'm going to sick the dog on you, you know, and everybody knew what that meant. That was kind of like the family thing. And years later, I went back and my mom has since passed away, but I tried to talk to her about it. I was like, I need, you know, tell me about that dog. And she's like, why do you want to talk about that? I'm like, I just, I want to know about it. I've never forgotten about that. You know, I've remembered it all my life and it sticks out of my head because it's, 
it's a very old memory that for a person of my age, most people don't remember what their life was like pre-kindergarten or whatever. You'll have snippets of memories here and there. You might remember a favorite toy. You might remember watching The Muppet Show or something like that. But most people don't have very vivid memories of first, second grade. Some people do. I don't know. Whatever. Um, but it's always stuck with me. And nobody in my family ever really wanted to talk to me about it. My mom vaguely did a couple of times. My uncle would not talk about it with me. Um, my grandmother and my aunt refused to talk to me about it. My grandmother was convinced that I was possessed and wanted to have me taken out of the home and have exorcisms and stuff on the house and everything. <laughs> um, my aunt would not come back to the house. She was terrified of it. Uh, all my cousins would say was, yeah, you were, you were pretty messed up. There was something going on with you. And that's really about as much as I've ever gotten out of it. So, you know, huh. yeah, that's the story. And, and and the French you can easily explain, too. Yeah. I mean, right, because children are just like sponges. I mean, they will soak up anything. But it's most even kids with problems don't go around pricking their fingers and writing things like our souls are food. Like at that age, I don't even know what a soul is. You know, all I want to do is watch G.I. Joe or whatever, you know, or the great (laughs) space coaster, you know, soul. I don't know what a soul is. I know what Gary Gadoos is, you know, so. You know, there that that's what really that, that's what kind of makes me scratch my head because it's such an odd statement. Even if it were a made-up story, that's not something that it's just such a bizarre thing. Like I'm not going to ever look at my kids and say, "Oh yeah, you pricked your fingers and painted on the wall with strange terms and things like that and and weird wording and stuff." You know, I'm not. Gonna, yeah, you wrote our souls are food on the wall. You know, what's my kid going to do? What, Dad? You know, are you are you drinking too much of your homemade beer again? You know, it's just, you know, it. it so there are there are definitely things about it that. Even looking at it from a skeptical point, after a certain point, you got to go. Well, why would they lie about this? Why would, why would somebody? Why would I wouldn't tell my? I, I wouldn't make up a story like that to tell it to my kids that they did something like that. It's just too bizarre. It's too weird. And it's not just one family member that told me. Everybody in my family member had stories about me doing very strange and bizarre stuff. So I don't. I don't. I don't fully know. To be honest with you, some of it. I think there's a core nugget to the story. As for how much mm-hmm. of it was embellished, I'm really not sure. Yeah, I mean, you never know. You never know exactly what could have happened there. Yeah, I, I really don't. I, I really have. I, like the dog left, and then all of a sudden you kind of go back to normal. But it, it doesn't even fit the classic black dog legends in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. I've never. I've read. I've read all of Linda Godfrey stuff, and I've read many books on black black dogs. Usually, black dogs are are warnings of ill omen throughout folklore and throughout English folklore. When you see a black dog, that means something bad is going to happen. I've never said anything. Sure. I've never seen anything where it says something, a person becomes possessed by some way, shape or form by it. So I, I again, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what the deal was. Um, and it definitely was not a normal dog. I mean, dogs just do not stand up and, and charge at you like that on, hind, on their hind legs. You know, even wolves don't do that when they hunt. So, I don't know. You know, <laughs> the problem is, is it was so, so long ago that it could very easily, you know, a skeptic could very easily look at me and shoot down every aspect of the story. And whatever they can't shoot down, oh, they can sure. just say, well, blah, 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 blah. You, you, you believe something happened to you. And, and since you don't remember it, you're going to listen to your family. And if your family believes something, you're going to believe what they say. 
So blah blah blah, whatever. You know, yeah, 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 snarky, snarky. And, the, sure. <laughs> and you don't you don't remember physically other than the dog. The only thing I remember, Sergio. What do you think about that? Hello, Sergio. What do you think about that? Well, it it brings to mind to me some of the symbolism of uh, these dogs. A lot of times, black dogs being these kind of like uh, underworld uh, messengers or companions that lead you through. You know the the underworld and the realm of death, etc. It's like the hellhound, I guess. And uh, and it's that was pretty terrifying, man. I think that's the creepiest story I've ever heard on Conspiracy. So <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I have had dreams but, about it, which is what prompted me to ask people in my family what the hell was. Oh, it? Really? Yeah, I've had dreams about it several times. I mean, they don't happen all the time. Um, they don't appear to be ill omens. Like, like I don't have. They don't pop up when things are stressful or difficult in my life. The dreams that I've had them have just been random, you know. Because it's always like, oh my god, I had a dream about a black dog. It was that black dog. What's going to happen? And nothing really appears to ever happen or anything. But that that was what prompted me to say, hey, you know, um, what? Tell me about this. Tell me everything you can about this. And and nobody in my family, most of my family, has since passed on. But nobody in my family wanted to talk to me about it. So, did it belong to like someone else around the property? Or? I have no idea. We have no idea where it came from. We have, um, yeah, we don't know. I mean, it was, it was a more of an annoyance than anything up until that happened. Like, it never physically attacked us. It never, but it definitely did challenge us. It definitely hung around to say, "Hey, you know, I'm here. You know, come at me." You know, and if it, it would never, it would never come up on us. It never got close enough to where. We had to do, but I mean, it wasn't unusual to pull in the driveway. And like the one night in particular, we pulled in from the driveway after grocery shopping, and it's pouring rain. And there it is. It's at the end of the driveway by, you know, out by the garage, just sitting there, like pacing back and forth, you know. And then finally, it just kind of like, it, it just, it didn't charge away. It just kind of walked off, like, you know, like whatever, goodbye. It walks off. And then my mom's like, well, we're just going to chill out in here for a couple of minutes, you know, but to make sure this thing's gone, you know. And then you're like, okay, let's hurry up and get our asses into the house with the groceries in the rain, you know, run up the steps and get in the door. And the other thing is, it was, you know, it would get up on its hind, get up into the screens, it would rip our screens out in our window with its paws because it had long nails. It would just rip the screens out, which was an annoying. God, Lord. Yeah, I think. Uh... <laughs> well, that would be an annoyance because it's like, okay, now we got to go pay to get our screens fixed because this stupid demon dog is, is you know. With, <laughs> Zool's out here messing with our with our screens. <laughs> <laughs> so. damn, damn beast from hell. <laughs> Hanging oh, around your dog. mom's house. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Have you ever tried to like have somebody draw this thing? No, I don't I don't really need to. You know, I could it, yeah. it, it, honestly it looked like a black Doberman. It looked like it looked like a German shepherd in the front that tapered off to a Doberman in the back, but it was very tall, like a Great Dane. So this mm. could very well have just been a crossbreed between a Great Dane and a German Shepherd. A black it could have been a black German Shepherd or a black Great Dane or whatever. And it was just, you know, a mixed breed dog. But it was big. I mean that there it was definitely big. And I've also had skeptics tell me, well, it was probably bigger than you thought it was because you were a child and, you know, things look bigger when you're a child. And I'm like, well, no, that doesn't make any sense because it would be able to stand up in its back legs and put its paws into our window. And those windows were a pretty considerable, you know, they were like five feet, six feet off the ground. 
because you had to go up steps to get it was like the house was built on a brick foundation that went off the ground a little bit if that makes any sense to you so the windows were up there so for it to get up to the windows it, when it stood up on its hind legs to get to the window if it were to stand up it would be able to put its paws on on your shoulders or your head when it stood up on its back legs so i mean it, it looked really menacing it was not this this it, it did not want to play fetch i mean it was you know <laughs> what's weird also is those dogs take a lot of food i mean i know people who just have large dogs like that and i can't yeah. imagine that kind of dog just kind of foraging around you know and being able to survive well we need our rabbits we need our chickens okay, you know we so we had hunting was just eating. yeah you know, I don't, it might have been someone's animal because at the time there were far, now, now the whole area has been built up with, with you know warehouses and stuff like that. It's not the same as it was when I was a kid. There's a, still a few houses around there, but most of the area now has become industrialized. But when I was a kid, there wasn't very much out there. It was you know our house, and then you'd have like a quarter of a mile down the road there would be another house, and there was woods behind us with nothing in them, you know, unless it was farm property. So it could very well have been a farmer's dog or something like that, and. You know, it, it wouldn't be that hard for a dog to survive off groundhogs and squirrels or whatever it's going to hunt out there. But it did eat our rabbits and squirrels. It would come up and it would rip the chicken wire right off of the doors. You know, we'd go out there and find chicken wires and stuff everywhere. I mean, it sounds funny, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you know my mom like eggs, you know. <laughs> This thing's a damn monster, man. It was more of an annoyance than be- beast. Yeah, you know, it was, it was just it was just one of those things, you know. So wow, you know. But again, I don't I don't remember much of it, and but things just, you know, I, I it's been a couple of years since I've had anything really strange happen, like really really strange. The last thing was when I had the UFO like kind of buzz over top of me and head down the road and and do its weird little teleportation thing that it did and that had been the most extreme thing that happened in a while and that that really flipped me out but you know that that's pretty much been it my my big thing that happens to me consistently on a regular basis is is synchronicities i i have i have tons and tons of synchronicities that happen to me all the time and, and for a long time it goes back to that thing of okay your your life is on, on a, is on a rail track you can't get off of it and it used to really bug me, but now when things happen like that, I just I've just learned to see them and say, "All right, this is this is one of those things that's happening again. I I have to go with it and roll with it, you know. And this is the way it's supposed to be. Like it drives my wife nuts. My, you know, like my me and my wife don't talk about any of this stuff. Any of this because she's very very different person than I am. But she she's mm-hmm. even recognized that strange things happen in my life and it weirds her out. And she comes from a very uh, Pentecostal, very Christian upbringing and background. So when she sees things happen with me, there's a lot that we don't talk about. Like, I don't think I've ever discussed the UFO sighting that I saw with her because I don't know how she'd react. But there's things that have happened where she just looks at me and goes, what's up with you? You know, are are you controlling this? Are you doing this? And, you know, I'm like, no, (laughs) it just this is stuff that just happens. And it weirds her out, whereas I've gotten used to I just go, okay, yeah, this is this is this is something that's supposed to happen. So it's it's either this or that. So let's make the proper decision and roll with it. What was your uh, what what's your thoughts on the occult, Rajan? You got any thoughts on um, that? What do you mean by occult? The, the cult's a pretty big breadbasket. Define. Uh, well, I mean, just like people that practice it. Well, um, as I look to my right, I have a variety of books on magic, um, but I am not a practitioner. I have many books on voodoo. I have books on fey magic. I have books on Madame Blavowski. Uh, 
uh, a whole bunch of books that I got from Aaron David. Actually, he sent me a bunch of stuff. I've got some uh, books on Christian magic. Um, magic fascinates me uh, purely as a belief system as to how people do what they do, but I don't get super involved in it. Like people, like people will hear me talk about it and then they'll stop dropping. They'll start dropping like a Nokian magic on me and, and all of this different stuff. And uh, I'm like, Whoa, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that deeply involved in it. You know, I'm not a practitioner, but I, I am fascinated by the different schools and the thoughts about how this stuff works. And, Things like that, but I don't. I don't think I could ever sit down and try doing any kind of spells or anything. I don't think I've. I've been curious to try chaos magic and, you know, do the thing where you write down what you want and make make a symbol out of it, and then you concentrate on it or have sex over it or masturbate or whatever you do to charge the symbol and then you burn it. But I, I don't think I. You know, when it comes right down to it, I'm probably not going to do that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, you know, I, mean, I, I think I'll just go and produce my next episode or watch some videos on YouTube or something. I don't know. So It's pro- it's probably more productive than creating hum- homunculus. Or yeah, something you like know, that. I mean, I, I already make my own beer and wine, so that's close enough to a homunculus for me. <laughs> there you yeah. go. There you go. Uh, well, we talked to about uh, this with Eric Wojo, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that uh, UFO conference oh God. that you guys went to. <laughs> that was bad. Um, that that was probably one of the dumbest things I've ever went to in my life. I actually left early. Actually, <laughs> I, I got to a point where I was like, "Okay, I'm done." You, you know. See, you should have stayed for the whole my, thing. My understanding I mean, only lasted about a half hour, just... and I felt bad because. Like Aaron, um, there was um, Aaron Golias lives in Flint. He lives north of me, and uh, I have a lot of respect for Aaron Golias. He's probably one of my favorite people in that field of doing stuff. And I bugged him online. Yeah, we've had Aaron yeah, on. He's a really, really cool guy. And um, I'm like, hey, this is going on. You should come down to it. And there's another guy that's got a podcast called Almost Educational, and he's pretty cool. And he was, he's like, yeah, I want to go to this stuff. And I'm like, um, all right, well, this is coming up. You know, it might be fun for laughs. Um, Eric is a bad influence on me in the sense that it can be like, hey, there's a building over there full of demonic spirits and people's heads are flying off. We should go check it out. And I'll go, no, Eric, this is probably a bad thing. Nah, come on. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. Come on. Let's go. And somehow this guy talks me into this stuff. Um, and there's a funny story. If you want, I'll tell you that in a couple of minutes. But um, so we go to this thing and we get there and I arrive. I'm the first person there and he's got him coming down and another mutual skeptic friend that we know. I met him at a party. It was a. Uh, I'm there, and he walks up. He says, so, you know, blah, 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 tells me that you've got a podcast, and you're into paranormal. And I'm like, yeah, not entirely paranormal, and I'm trying to explain what we do and where I'm coming from. And he's like, well, I'm a skeptic, and I've written for Skeptical Inquirer magazine. I generally don't like skeptics, um, most skeptics, and because a lot of them tend to be very snarky, very dismissive very um i'm better than you because i don't believe in this stuff that you do so that makes you a lesser funny person in my vibe um and eric wasn't like that he was kind of like you know what i can't explain what happened to you and if you you know believe in this stuff whatever that's cool you know and i just hit it off with him so anyhow i get to this place and i pull up and it's in this old abandoned like like strip mall um it was supposed to be like a bunch of outlet stores that failed 
So on the way down there, I'm like, I'm like, oh boy, you know, I, I know this is going to be a church run thing. So I know there's a kind of bait and switch that's going to happen. And they were supposed to be showing this movie where it turns it with their, their thing was aliens and extraterrestrials are actually demons. And I'm like, all right, we'll go watch this movie. And as Eric said, it'll probably be funny. So Aaron knew he he was getting into, you know, Aaron's like, oh yeah, this is great. I'm gonna have a lot of fun with this, you know, and I'm like, all right. So I get there and there's a big, there's like this big abandoned strip mall. There's this convention center and I'm thinking, okay, maybe they rented a convention center and there's a lot of people coming to this stuff, into this thing or whatever. I don't know. No, it's a bait and tackle shop. And then next to it, what used to be like a famous footwear or something is now converted to a church of some kind. I walk in, I look around, I'm like, this is a church. There's six people here. Counting me, there's seven. And there's a woman selling, like, these scarves in this room to the right. I'm like, that's the vendor room. There's two tables in the vendor room. Oh, boy, this is bad. So I walk outside, and I'm, like, trying to furiously call people. I didn't have a way to get a hold of Aaron. I'm like, this is bad. Don't come. Don't come. Eric pulls up and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I think I'm about to die. And he goes, come on, it'll be fun. You know? And I'm like, I don't know. I think this is bad. I I think I've got flesh eating bacteria and I have to leave. I don't know. And he's like, no, come on. Did, did you think they were going to pull the snakes out on you? I or wouldn't something? have been surprised. The, the, the strict nine I would not have been surprised because these, the women that were uh, there were all wearing like the denim skirts. You know, and oh, I could boy. listen to people that were talking in there and even the people that were the people that were there were church members and there wasn't many of them. And they're all kind of like, you know, they're like, well, you know, I, when I walked in, they're like, you're not a member of our congregation and we're going to look at you very strange, you know, and I'm like, oh, no. So I'm like, <laughs> all right. So they're, we're all kind of like giving each other the sideways look like you're weird. And they're like, you're weird. So I go outside. And I'm like, this is bad. Don't come. No, no, come on. It'll be fun. So Aaron pulls up. Uh, and I'm like, that's Aaron. I know who he is. So he walks in and I'm like, hi, you're Aaron. I'm really sorry. And he's laughing and he's like, no, this is cool. I'm going to actually engage these people. It'll be fun. The other guy shows up. He's like, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm out of here. I'm like, I'm going to be right behind you. So he leaves. So they start doing the presentation, and you heard about it, I think, where they actually started no. showing pictures from, like, one of the Dungeons and Dragons monster manuals. Um, about, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. <laughs> I still play D&D every once in a while, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's the Fiend Folio. And they've got, like, this scorpion creature, and they're talking about how aliens are mixing DNA with man, and actually the aliens are demons, and they're going on. And then the guy busts out with, well, if you're here for this movie... There's no movie. We didn't get the movie. They didn't send it to us. So if you're here for that, you know, there's no movie. And I'm like, oh, great. And then the guy starts. It's, that is just a that is just a complete failure at all levels. Yeah, it was bad. You know, so then the guy did he have some snacks or something? No, well, they did, but I didn't. I didn't want to eat them because I didn't want it to turn into like a Jonestown thing where we were all drinking the Kool Aid. So, oh my god! So. You know, they're telling us this stuff, and then uh, I've got my two skeptical friends next to me, and I'm trying not to laugh, I'm because some of the stuff was getting really ridiculous, you know? And um, so they start talking about angels, and the guy's like, well, what do angels look like? Well, we don't know. We all think that they're going to look like winged creatures, but they're not. The truth is they would look just like us. So he goes, I've gone through the effort, and I've found some pictures of what angels would look like, and I kid you not, you've got a projector screen. He puts a picture of a bunch of frat boys that are all like like broing out in this picture. And I look over at I look over at Eric and my other friend and I'm like, Are you fuck no, I'm sorry. I'm like, are you are you freaking kidding me? 
you know, and I look back. So I start texting him. I'm like, we're surrounded by angels. And we're sending these snarky texts back and forth, which, of, of course, now we've become the snarky skeptics. So anyhow, it goes on and on and on and about how, you know, that we're starting to tamper with gene DNA of creatures. And then they've got this, they put up this big picture of this super buff, like bovine cow with like monstrous muscles. And none of it was going anywhere. I don't know what the heck the guy was actually trying to say. I, I really don't know. And I'm like, he's like, well, it's break time now. So, and as this is going on, there's like four of us, five of us, and we all knew each other pretty much. And then you have the rest of the congregation. And as the whole thing's going on, everybody in there, we're all tossing each other sideways glances. They're like, they're looking at us like you're UFO people. And we're looking at them like you're crazy cultists, you know, and we're like staring each other down the whole time. It was just so bizarre. So break time comes and I'm like, I got to go. I've got gonorrhea. Bye. You know? So I jack, you know, I'm like, Aaron, man, I'm really sorry. He's like, nah, don't worry about it. It's cool. I felt really bad for inviting these guys, but I guess it went on for another half hour. And then there was the question and answer part. And that was it. But the funny thing is, is while they were on break, they kept trying to hand us these cards and uh, he's like, yeah, we want you to be part of our UFO research group. And I'm like, well, what does that entail? And they're like, well, okay, say a UFO is reported over the Great Lakes locally. What we'll do is we will all send out the call. We will all meet up down here. We'll grab the church van. We will go out to the site. And then we will do a prayer circle. <laughs> and we will pray over. And hold on a second here. They've actually got this sheet. Hold on a minute. Hold, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> I'll grab this piece of paper here. They've got this piece of paper that you can call and order stickers up, and they say at the very top of it, say no, it's your inalienable right. And one of the stickers is, pray the gray away, and it's got a picture of, like, oh, no, and a slash through it, and then it says, uh, spell, this, I'm going to read this, exactly as it says it. <clears throat> Trust me, I, I have entertainment value in this, believe me. It says, spell alien, A-L-I-E-N. It begins with a lie. Dispel the deception. Say no for free stickers and self, uh, something, blah, blah, blah. Send a stamped envelope. Another one is um, disempower. The disease, say no to deceptive alien uh, witnesses. And it's got all these, like... Like, very biblical, say, you know, they, they've all got the gray alien symbol, like the face with the circle with the line drawn through it, like Ghostbusters. <laughs> and, like, one of them is fight, fight for your independence, declare your independence from alien abduction and, and uh, what does it say? Demon, demonal intrusion or, I don't know. Bye. Anyways. <laughs> So anyways, back to the story. So we're going to meet up, get in this church bus, and, and he's handing me this stuff as he's telling me this. He's handing me this card. He keeps handing me this card, and he wants me to fill it out. And I'm like, no, 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 I know how this works. And he's like, we're going to get in the church van. We're going to go. We're going to make a prayer circle. Then we're going to pray to get the transgressions away. And then we're going to see what we can observe and see what we can find. And I don't know if it was me or Eric says, well, what's the scientific part of it? He goes, well, we're going to investigate. We'll look in the skies and see if we can find a UFO or, or evidence of aliens. And I'm like, that's not scientific. That's sightseeing, you know. And then, like, the pin drops and everybody in the church slowly stares at me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go because you're going to burn me an effigy. So, um, yeah, guy, see you. You know, take care. Bye. <laughs> it was, the whole thing was very, very bad put together and very, very weird. Um, I first knew there was a problem when I clicked on the Facebook page saying is attending. And I started getting all these messages from people saying, so you're into UFOs like on Facebook. And I'm like, 
okay, are you listening to the show? And then I would do a little background check on the person. Oh, they're from the same city that this church is in. And, well, I don't believe in UFOs, but I'm going to this thing anyways and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you're a member of the church and you're trying to feel out who I am and and what's going on with me. And I had quite a few people that were doing that, like trying to gauge the people that were coming down and how many people were coming down and stuff. And they had like milk and cookies and coffee and, and stuff like that, you know, and it was... I don't know. It felt very Branch Davidian. I don't know how else to describe it. And they had this big poster when you first walk into the right where it showed this cross-dressing old man storming out of a bathroom, like holding onto a kid's hand or something, saying, it's my right to believe I'm a woman or something like that. And What? <laughs> even the people that were there selling scarves were like, we're out of here. I think they were there for like 20 minutes after it started, and they, they jetted. They were gone, too. So Pray the gray away. Yeah, pray the gray away. away sticker bed. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You can just t- type in "pray the gray away" in Google Images, and you'll see the sticker, and you can order them. I actually might order a couple. That's of great. Yeah, it, I mean, that it was and it wasn't. You know, <laughs> it was, you know, it's it's funny because it seems like you know, I'm familiar with that world somewhat because mm-hmm. uh, I kind of come from that that world. I've familiar with the people that like the uh the little alien with the with the cross out of it that's um my good friend guy malone i mean that's he came up with that uh he's actually interviewed in that movie that you're yeah. talking about yeah, the guy, the but guy it just narrates it, it's one of the guys from the dukes of hazard right right yeah he was telling me about it and we actually talked about it on this show um but it's interesting how that church has just kind of embraced this completely. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it sounds strange, but, you know, you're going to that's, – that's why I said belief is a dangerous thing because once you get it in your it, – it's like that scene from Dogma where, where Chris Rock is talking. He says, you can have an idea, but once you have a belief, belief is power, and you're going to want to do whatever you can – to make whatever you believe in fit into your to your spectrum, to fit into your window frame. You know, and when I was there was an episode we were on with On Where the Road Go when Cutchin was on there and I was talking about that Cutchin and Josh said, Yeah, I think everything is fairies, you know. But you know, he was he was joking about it, you know, and he, he you know I Yeah, he's being facetious. Yeah, I don't think he's fully into that belief, you know, but we're like, nah, you're too cool, you know, you get a pass or whatever. But you know, I've got friends that are into this that once they get locked into their to their paradigm, they want to stay there. And people get frustrated with me because I just go, I don't know, you know, and I don't think we're ever going to. And and, and I really don't care. You know, I, I don't think we're ever going to find this stuff. So when people come up to me and they say, yeah, I want to get into the paranormal. I want to go ghost hunting. I want to go see UFOs. You know, I want to go hunt Bigfoot or I want to go do this stuff. And the first thing I see is, well, why do you want to do it? You know, what what is your story leading into this and if they say well i had an experience or something like that i'll say well you know be careful of what you hang your hat on investigate everything don't just pick up you know go don't go to a ufo convention and start talking to people and get hooked onto the first thing you find because you can get sucked down some really dangerous rabbit holes um you know go out and 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 read and investigate everything that you can try to absorb everything and but if they say well i want to look for evidence and i want to prove something to somebody it's like, don't do that. You know, if you want to get into stuff and try to prove stuff to yourself, that's one thing. If you think you're going to get into this and you're going to get, quote, unquote, evidence ghost hunting or you're going to find something in the world of UFOs or anything, you're not. 
that's the wrong reason to get into it. You either need to get into the find the stuff for yourself and be cool with what you find, but don't expect to get into this and try to convert people or whatever because you know, there's people that are ready to take you for a ride. There's there's all kinds of people in this that are out there trying to sell you or try to get you into this. Or it's just a very mucky, murky world. You know, all the aspects of it are. So, you know, I tell people mostly, I'm like, don't get into it. Go go watch Ghost Hunters on on Sci-Fi Channel or you know whatever or listen to you know Coast to Coast or whatever the stuff is. But you know, approach it from that aspect. Don't get involved in this stuff because. A lot of it's garbage, and you're not going to get any real answers out of it, you know? <clears throat> yeah, well, man, agreed. you're such a downer, Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, well, I think that's a good place to stop, unless if, if there's anything that you wanted to ask. Yeah, I did want to ask, uh, just in general, how you feel about what the, the future of this kind of research culture uh with of course you know the technology and everything what what kind of the your ideas on where it's going in this evolution nowhere i don't think it's it's no serious i mean i'm not trying to say that to to, to be the downer but again we've been looking into this stuff for a long time there's always there's always another frank's box around the corner there's always another emf meter there's always you know, this this stuff has always been there, and I really don't, for one, science is... You just, you're seriously roboing out on us. Oh, boy. For now, it's what it is. This has been a long time. Rojan? Yeah. We didn't catch any of that. You roboed okay. out. <laughs> where did I cut off? Well, I've got my recording. Where did, where did I cut off at? Uh, we were talking about where there's there's always going to be another Frank's okay. box. There's always going to be a, 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 a this thing or that yeah, there's, thing. There's always going to be something like that. There always has been something like that. There's always been little devices. There's always been things like spiritualism. And, and really, we're no further than we were 50 years, 100 years ago. You know, we're we're no further now than we were back then, and I don't think we're going to be much further in the future. The names and the faces are beginning to change. Some of the messages that are out there are beginning to change. Um, but until science actually is willing to accept that something is going on and to change its way of thinking, and and maybe that'll do it, but I don't think that's going to happen. It's it's always going to come down to you've got the believers and you've got the skeptics. And the believers are going to believe in things that they want to believe in, and the skeptics are going to believe in things the way that they want to believe in. And it's going to—the only way it's going to do anything is it's—it's it's all a very personal experience kind of thing. So I, I don't think we're going—I don't—I don't think we're going to go anywhere. The conversations may change, which is interesting. You know, the way that people are approaching this stuff is finally starting to change. Yeah, but yeah, that's kind of more what I meant. I think. Yeah, that's going to change, but. I don't think we're going to find any answers. You know, it, it, it's going to come down to, you know, this whole thing. Well, it's maybe it's something messing with our consciousness. It's like, well, what does that mean? You can say that, but okay, well, where's that coming from? Well, we don't know. Well, that's the bottom line. We don't know. We don't know what it is. You know. <laughs> I so, got you. You know, I'm not trying to be mean about it or whatever, but 
you know, I just I don't think we're going to get anything out of it. Now, having said that, it's still fun to investigate this stuff. It's still fun to talk about it. It still piques my curiosity, and it piques a lot of other people's curiosity. And I don't think there's anything wrong with looking into the stuff. But if you're going out there trying to find answers and trying to be the one that changes things, or if you're trying to be the next Tom DeLong, you know, don't bother. You know, just stay home and be an armchair paranormalist. <laughs> <laughs> Good, Start a podcast. good advice. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Exactly. All right, uh, Rojan, tell people where they can uh, contact you and where they can hear Project Archivist. You can find Project Archivist, even though I know we're saying it wrong. It's supposed to be Project Archivist. Um, you can find Project Archivist anywhere you find <laughs> podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find us. The only place that you can't find us for some strange reason is Google Play. And there's something weird going on with the algorithm that won't allow us to post our shows up on there. But we're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, ProjectArchivist.com. We're on Podbean. You can, If you have the Podbean app, you can just subscribe to us through there. Um, we try to put out a show every week. Um, not everything we do is paranormal. Sometimes we just do really stupid, funny shows. Like the one we just dropped this week is just weird news in some way, shape, or form. Um, we cover a lot of different topics. We bounce all over the place, and we try to have a sense of humor about it because, um, quite frankly, paranormal has a real big stick up its ass, and it has a hard time laughing at itself. So, you know, but we also, you know, you're not going to listen. You're not going to hear normal topics. You're, we're not a paranormal greatest hits show. We're not going to talk about Roswell. We're not going to talk about all this stuff that everybody else is out there talking about. We try to be, you know, we very, we're very esoteric and very different on the, uh, the subjects that we try to cover. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sir. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. And, Serfiel, thank you for uh, sitting in with us on this. Yeah, absolutely. It's from Studio C. <laughs> Studio C and from Studio B. This is Adam, and uh, we will be right back to for another section of the show on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> And it's like two weeks later. We hope everybody enjoyed that little interview with Rojan. I know Rob did. Yeah, it was great. Great stuff. Um, can't wait to talk to him again. <laughs> You'd like Rojan, man. He's a, Michi- he's a Michigander, just like you. And apparently an industrial music guy. Yes, yes. So. We, we, we got to be on his show. We got to be on Project Archivist. Surfiel and I did. Yeah, I need to. I need to go check that out. I was. Um, that was my only night off, so I spent it with my family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, me and Surfiel just, you know, just we're, we're pathetic. So we. <laughs> we, 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 we Saturday ended, night. We, we, Saturday night, John brother, on Project Archivist. Let's talk some, some conspiracies. So, similar to how we did with the Gary Lockman show. And it's actually good, Rob, that you don't know any of this material because you'll be able to give your insight into it. Oh, I'll ask lots of questions. And 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 ask questions. And uh, you do have your vino, so you're ready. Yep, I got some wine. Your 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 boxed wine from Coj. That's right. 
Fancy. Fancy, fancy. So we're going to talk about a book by author Dave McGowan. And Dave McGowan was an author who wrote, what was it? He wrote Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Yep. Which was about, uh, what was it? Conspiracy theory on... The Laurel Canyon scene and kind of the counterculture of the 60s being kind of organized. By the CIA? Or just the powers that be to create a distraction that, you know, eventually kind of dulled the movement against Vietnam. Huh. I wish we were talking about that book. I'd have a lot more input, probably. Yeah, I think we will talk about that book as well. Um, but the book that we're going to talk about tonight is another one of his books called Program to Kill. And this is one that I actually heard McGowan speak about on Darkness Radio way back in like 2011 or 2012. And I didn't know, remember who it was, but he basically ties in Serial Killers and the Phoenix Program. And so we'll start with the Phoenix Program and what that is. So I'm going to turn it over here to our boy, Surfiel. Okay, so, um, you know, in our lead-up to full-scale war with Vietnam, there was a lot of kind of uh, uh, covert assistance to South Vietnamese and what it started, I guess, with actual uh, these international police training stuff. And what McGowan kind of gets at and what's explored a lot by people who've gone into the Phoenix program now is that there was some really kind of heinous stuff that went on as far as um, doing things to terrorize the uh, communist insurgents in South Vietnam. Things that might today look familiar to us uh, look like Scenes from serial killer murders, ritualistic fashionings of crime scenes and, you know, just total barbaric butchering of people and stuff like that. And so what McGowan does is he starts looking into the background of some of these serial killers and finds strange military connections. And then when he researches the Phoenix program he kind of ties, he starts tying that in. The Phoenix program also uh, is where, if anybody has heard it, it's a clip on YouTube, very spooky clip, but uh, I'll just add this in. The, the Wondering Soul, which was a recording that was done to frighten either the North Vietnamese Army or the Viet Cong guerrillas. And supposedly it was this soldier that had been killed out in the middle of the jungle and he was walking around saying that he couldn't find his home and that uh, you didn't want to end up like him so you better stop fighting and what the Americans would do is they would take these loudspeakers and put them into the jungle and they would play this over and over and it's very it's very frightening uh, very eerie sounding, but completely manufactured. And I actually was reading something about it last night. I was kind of going over a little bit about the Phoenix program. 
and they said that they had to be careful to not play it around South Vietnam South Vietnamese troops because it would have the same effect. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of this general uh, a lot of psychological warfare, and right. he, he doesn't say that you know all these serial killers were necessarily tied to the Phoenix program. He he uses that as an example where these types of things took place. So there could have been other programs that led to other serial killers. Yeah, and, and kind of he he's he's going through. Uh, he starts with really getting into like uh, uh, what he calls a pedophocracy, and showing that there's all these elites that seem to be tied into documented organized pedophilia, and so he he uses that to show well if you know th- if the elites are involved in things like that, then why is it such a stretch that some of this other, this, the serial killer stuff could, could also have some connections to either, you know, government or other elements. Oh yeah. That's not even a stretch of the imagination for me. I think that if, um, if there's a possible tactic to take that they've tried it, you know, um, be it, um, terrorizing people or, uh, psychological warfare of any kind of manner, um, to gain an upper, kind of handhold then I'm, I'm sure it's been done or it talked about or experimented on. He talks about the Dutro case in Belgium significantly. Uh, this is one, and, and we should do kind of a whole show on this, but I'll kind of like briefly. Dutro was a convicted pedophile in Belgium who was thought to have a lot of connections to the Belgian government including all the way up to the king of Belgium. Um, He apparently had, and other associates of his, were keeping children in dungeons and in basements. Um, So there was that aspect of it. He also talks about the Franklin cover-up, which I've discussed on this show before in relationship to the Pizzagate. This was about the uh, guy named Larry King in... Omaha, Nebraska, who was actually convicted of, I think, embezzlement or some kind of uh, tax evasion. But also when they found that, they found that there was this child sex trafficking ring of young boys that was kind of operated out of Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska, which incidentally... The McGowan ties that into, coincidentally enough, to uh, Charles Manson, because Manson, as a child, passed through Boys Town. Uh, so there's that. Uh, there's a documentary called uh, Who Took Johnny Gosh, which is very interesting. Uh, that's on, on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, that uh, you can watch. That uh, has a lot, that disappearance of him, who was a paper boy who disappeared and there's a connections to that case and to the Franklin cover-up. He, dispo- he disappeared out of uh, West Des Moines, Iowa, uh, which is not too far from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and also the Finders case, which was where, and I think this was in Florida, where they found these unkempt children living in this van that was apparently they said that uh, 
they were the guys were taking these children down to Mexico for a school for special children. And the find then this group was called the Finders, and they had some kind of weird connection to the CIA. Uh, so those are the main three that he kind of hops on. And he does that. And he at first I'm reading it and I'm thinking, what does this have to do with serial killers? What's the connection here? Why is he going through all this? And I think what it is, is, is that he's trying to connect it to where that he seems that there seems to be this kind of cult activity. Mind that control. Is, yeah, mind control that is connected to both pedophile rings and to these serial killers. And that, also, that some of these serial killers are either used, A, to... Cut to murder people involved in the cult, or they are taking the rap for the people that are actually murdering the people in the cult. Similar to what we talked about in the last show, the kind of ring that uh, William Ramsey and Jim Smith were speculating was behind the smiley face killer. Okay, so this is way deeper than I thought it was. I was yes, thinking, <clears throat> it goes deep. When when uh, you guys, because we talked a little bit about this book on um, the, the episode with Tom and Jenny, and I. I what I kind of picked up and where I thought this was going to go basically was that there was um, uh, military training operations that just bled into our society. Um, not so much a, a direct hand in um, right. influencing people to, to cover stuff up. So what's the, uh, what, what's, what's the evidence there to, to kind of support, support that the, um, the direct like killing of, people to cover stuff up kind of thing. Well, he it's all kind of under the background of 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 mind control and of the fact that all of these almost all of these serial killers have this kind of trauma in their in their background. Most of them had a lot of abuse as children. Yeah. And how the intelligence agencies uh sh- found that by uh, torturing and abusing people, they could create useful, you know, Manchurian candidate. It's just that classic kind of thing. Right, right, right. I get that. And that's, and that's what I had picked up before on, but like, what, what are the, some of the, um, um, I guess the, uh, people that were taken out that would, um, kind of support the case that there, it's a cover up, like to, to kill people that, um, you know what I'm saying like, like a lot of it's based on the testimony of the killers, which I know is so it's not like it's a bunch of victims shaky. that were suspiciously tied to things that needed that like might want to be you know disappeared kind of thing. Or? He seems to think in the book that there he he takes one case about a killer in Yosemite National Park that he believes took the fall for a greater group of assassins that. Uh, and he looks at some of these victims and they were all kind of elite people and they had all these kind of weird connections to, to either the government or to intelligence agencies. And he speculates a lot of this is speculation. Yeah, absolutely. So you take absolutely. it where, you know, you can take it with as much a grain of salt as you want. And, and some of it I do um, because it is kind of hard for you to put your mind around it because you, we are so we're, we're given this perspective on serial killers that this is one person and they do it and they're sick and they, they commit these crimes. But he's looking at some of the 
some of the cases, and he is saying that it looks like the why did the police not get this piece of evidence? Why did they leave this out? Why does it seem like this guy's being railroaded? And that either this person is being is taking the blame or is being set up to take the blame for it. I get that, but I think there's also a lot of pressure when you've got a case like that to absolutely <laughs> to you know to find the culprit and to solve it and to like you know especially in a lot of it, kind of areas where these things take place, you've got a whole culture of people that are like solve this, like make us safe, make us safe. Right. And, um, what I found was weird was a lot of um, a lot of the killings attributed to these people were based on just the testimony of these killers. Yeah, but then the other stuff they said about, I didn't do this alone, blah, 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 was ignored. Right. Yeah. There were several, there were several so, I mean, statements I, like I that. Agree. Like Ramirez yeah. said that kind of stuff. John Wayne Gacy even made that statement. Henry Lee Lucas. So that's been right. like kind of universally ignored. If there's yeah. yeah, and and I agree that you should be very skeptical of these people who obviously have serious problems. But it's like you but know, if, half but if of it is yeah, but if someone's going to say, "Yeah, I did it," but somebody helping you, you'd think they would look into it and right, unless you know. Like he, like he speculates, perhaps they're a part of something that is tied to powerful people or, or organizations, et cetera. Yeah, he says that there's huh. a, a myth of the. He says the myth of the serial killer. Right. So let's take John Wayne Gacy for example. Yes, please. Let's talk about clown. Yes, Pogo, good old Pogo. <laughs> but he's the perfect example of this. So here's a guy that is very high up in kind of like the Democratic party politics of his time in Chicago universally loved by a lot of important people. And he is, he 33 bodies, which that's an interesting number are found in the bottom of his crawl space and his home. As I said before, Gacy as according to McGowan, Gacy says that he did not act alone so he knew a lot of different people, and there was some evidence that some stuff was covered up. Like there was, I think they said in one of them, I'm going by memory here from what I read, but it looked like there was a guy that actually bought the home and bulldozed it afterwards that uh, was pretty high up in the city government in Chicago. So the according to McGowan, his thought is is that Gacy was part of a wider ring, and right. this ring was using someone like Gacy who had these psychopathic and brutal sexual proclivities to go in there and and get victims that they could abuse and then kill. But the possibility that yeah, Gacy was involved, that he probably did do some of them, but he might not have killed all of them. Right. So that's that's one that's that's one aspect of what McGowan is saying. I think Gacy is a good example of it. Ted Bundy was another one that he talks about as well. And he talks about how Bundy seemed to be taking the blame or there didn't seem to be very many there didn't seem to be very much evidence that actually implicated Bundy. But uh, Bundy, I think, also made statements that there were other people involved as well. Um, we actually have a guy, Kevin Sullivan, that is an expert on Bundy. I'd love to get him on the show and 
throw that at him, see what he says. I mean, maybe someone and that, that would have a different opinion on that. Uh, and they said that it seems like there's a mythology that gets built up around these guys to make them seem worse than they actually were. Not that they didn't actually kill anybody, but that they were, that they probably weren't, didn't kill as many people. So it seemed like it's impossible. It seemed almost impossible that one guy was doing it. Also, there's statements. Here's a theory. I don't know if this was touched on in the book because I didn't read it. But um, <clears throat> do you think they're just taking these guys who are actually out there and already there, and they're just like, uh, we don't know how to get rid of these bodies. Let's just lump them in. That could yeah, be perhaps something like that. I was going to say real quick, Adam, too. Like uh, you said, it seems like some of you know these extreme feats and all these people that supposedly one person killed is either a, you know, seems unlikely or B, if they were able to do all that, it would sometimes seem like they were seriously trained or programmed and almost this kind of superhuman warrior kind of yeah, are programmed eventually right. are programmed to take the blame if they needed right. to take the blame. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like, there's a, a good point that came up again on the um, episode of the 13 o'clock peeps. Um, where they were saying, like, you know, people always think about serial killers as being really smart. Well, it's not necessarily that. It's just the ones that got away with it that you hear about were the smart ones because they got away with it. Yeah. You don't hear about the dumb ones that would have been serial killers because they're dumb. They got caught. Well, I have I have a passage from the book that I want to read. Okay. And uh, this, this, uh, this is a good example, I think, of his thought process of what uh, this can mean by somebody that's actually taking the blame. Uh, this is about Richard Speck, who was the Boston Strangler, I believe. No, um, I think this was actually in Chicago, so he wasn't the... But he supposedly killed these nurses in 1966. So, he just talked about uh, Stainer, who was the uh, guy in Yosemite we were talking about. If the available evidence in the Stainer case leaves doubts about the sole guilt of the accused, that is all the more true in the case of the infamous Richard Speck. If veteran criminal investigators are puzzled as to how Stainer was able to subdue and control three women, then it truly boggles the mind how one man was able to single-handedly subdue nine women, bind them all, and then systematically kill all but one of them. According to the sole survivor, Cora Amaru, she answered the door in the early morning hours of July 14, 1966, allowing Speck entry into the house. She claimed he was brandishing a gun, though none of the victims were shot that night, and no evidence was ever found indicating that the gun was used at the crime scene. Authorities claimed that Speck stole the gun from a rape victim on the very day of the slaughter and then used it to quickly corral Amaru and five other women in the house into a room. He then proceeded to tear a sheet into strips, which he then used to tie the women up one by one. How he was able to accomplish this while keeping all the rest at bay and allegedly while keeping a knife in his hand at all times is anyone's guess. Three more women arrived home after Speck's alleged entry into the house. All three were quickly bound and forced into the room with the others. Speck then allegedly began dragging the women off one at a time and slaughtering them, spending 20 minutes or more with each victim. After he finished with one, according to Amaru, he would go into the bathroom to wash up and then return for another. This scene played out over the course of some four and a half hours. 
During that time, the young women waiting their turn tried to hide under the beds, hoping to elude their assailant. They were, of course, found and killed. All of them, that is, except Cora Amaru, who claims that she alone avoided detection by Speck. It has been suggested that Speck lost count of his victims and falsely concluded that all the girls were dead, thereby making the crucial error of leaving a living witness. That part of the story is problematic in a number of ways. The first question raised is, why did the young women choose to remain in the room in which they had been herded? If, despite their bindings, they were able to move about within the room, which they clearly were, or they would not have been able to get under the beds, then why would they not leave the room altogether? And once out of the room, why not get completely out of the house? And what was to prevent the women from untying each other? After all, the pattern was set early on. After the first couple of slayings, it had to be abundantly clear to the women that their lives were about to come to an abrupt end. For despite the claims that Speck cleaned himself up after each killing, it is ridiculous to suggest that Speck could have concealed the fresh blood that would have covered his clothes, assuming that he didn't bring eight changes of clothing with him. It also had to be quite clear to the awaiting victims that the selection of each new victim signaled that there would be a 20 to 30 minute window of opportunity to attempt an escape and what was there to lose. It seems inconceivable that the women facing certain death would have passively awaited their fate. But what of the survivor's story? It should be quite clear to anyone that an adult simply cannot avoid detection by hiding underneath a bed. That was amply illustrated by the fact that all but one of those attempting to do so were discovered, and yet one survived. How is it possible that Speck could have searched under the beds to locate the others and yet failed to see Cora Amaru hiding there as well? And does it really seem likely that Speck was unable to count the nine? If not for the existence of the sole survivor, police investigators would have immediately assumed that multiple perpetrators were responsible for the mass carnage. No theorizing was necessary, however, since an eyewitness was on the scene to provide the unlikely sole assailant scenario that was later refined to become the official story. Interestingly, though, the composite drawing, a crude two-dimensional rendering that was seriously lacking in detail of the suspect that was released by police, purportedly based on Amaru's description, did not resemble Richard Speck. Since the trial of the man fingered by police hinged primarily on Amaru's eyewitness testimony and very little else, the star witness was zealously protected, although if the imprisoned Richard Speck was indeed the sole assailant, then it is difficult to see how that witness was in any danger. Amari was moved to a resort where four guards were posted around the clock and she was held there incommunicado for months while being prepped extensively for the testimony that she was to deliver. Before being hidden away, Amari allegedly identified the suspect, albeit in a most unusual manner. While Speck in a hospital recovering from a failed suicide attempt just days after the killings, Amaru was allegedly sent into his room dressed as a nurse to get a good look at the suspect. From this encounter, she positively identified Speck as the killer, leaving aside the obvious fact that the fact that this was a brazenly illegitimate means of identifying a suspect, one which would have invalidated any subsequent attempts by Miss Amaru to pick Speck out of a police lineup. The real question here is, what caliber of police official would send a severely traumatized crime victim who just days before had witnessed the slaughter of eight of her friends and experienced the sheer terror of knowing that she could well be next into a room unprotected to face the man who had put her through such torture? That's a good point. And what victim would be able to handle such an encounter with the memory so fresh? And what guarantee was there that Speck would not recognize his accuser given that hers was the first face he had seen as he entered the house that night? Amaro's dramatic identification of Speck was just a warm-up exercise for what was to come. When the time came for her to deliver her critical testimony to Pat courtroom, she delivered a bravura performance. 
Amaru recited an endlessly rehearsed version of the events of July 14th, and then when the time came to identify the suspect in court, she played her trump card, rising from her seat. Allegedly, without any prompting or rehearsal, she calmly stepped out of the witness box, walked casually over to where Speck sat at the defense table, stood directly in front of him while looking him in the eye, and told the court, this is the man. That was the clincher. Speck was found guilty after just 49 minutes of jury deliberations and sentenced to death. There are indications, though, that this was hardly a foregone conclusion. Prosecutors clearly had doubts about their visibly shaky case, and they appeared to have made every effort to sack the deck in the state's favor. One indication is that it is the fact that the jury selection process was, as defense attorney James Gromanos has noted, illegal and unfair. Gromanos objected strenuously to the blatant violation of his client's due process rights, but was overruled. Another indication was the remarkable fact that even though the case was moved some three hours outside of Chicago, the first time any trial had ever been moved out of Cook Cook County due to pretrial publicity, the judge opted to stay on in the new venue. That same judge slept a gag order on the press, guaranteeing that no news would get back to Chicago or to anywhere else in the country. Coupled with the blocking of any interviews with Amaru, the gag order shut the public out from learning the weakness of the case against Speck. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, Speck was pretty much in prison, a preferred yeah. prisoner. He says, and what of Speck? He was likely more, little more than a Patsy or Fall guy who may have been involved to some extent in the killings, but he certainly was not the sole assailant, and he might not have been in the house at all that night. He had no memory of ever leaving the bar that he had been drinking in earlier that evening, but he did remember receiving an injection from a man he did not know. There is no question that Speck was drinking in a bar that night. A number of witnesses placed him there, though most were unsure of when Speck had left. Two of the witnesses, though, a husband and wife, placed him at the bar during at least a portion of the time frame when the killings occurred. These witnesses were neither friends or acquaintances of the accused, and they had no known reason to provide Speck with a false alibi. So this... um. This is a little different than what I was kind of expecting. This is not more. This is more of a um, planted scapegoat kind of scenario than yeah. like a trained um, sleeper cell kind of a thing. So yeah, what, I what, think what, that's the, an element of it too, but what, that's part of it. Yeah. What, I mean, what, what's the implication there as far as the nurse goes? Do are they, are they th- saying that she's part of the conspiracy and not part of not a victim at all? Some of these witnesses are just strange. I think as far as the uh, Gacy too. Wasn't there a few Gacy survivors who testified mm-hmm. who, you know, his his M.O. was like tie you up and torture you. And so somehow I guess they were I don't I'm not that familiar with the case, but according to McGowan, they were, you know, tied up and tortured and then still managed to escape. Uh, yeah. Some, I mean, that seems kind of strange. I'm not I haven't read too much outside of this about it though. So I don't, you know, I don't know, but well, and here's to, to go on just a little bit about this. Uh, it is possible that Richard Speck and David Berkowitz and Pietro Pasciani took the fall to protect others. That would certainly help explain the preposterously lax treatment of Speck during his confinement as evidenced by that home videotape produced circa 1988 that depicted Speck sorting huge piles of cocaine and flashing rolls of money, not to mention sporting a rather large and quite unattractive pair of breasts. No explanation has been forthcoming as to how it was possible for one of America's most notorious killers while residing in what is repeatedly one of the toughest prisons in the country was able to obtain copious quantities of drugs and money and gain access to video equipment and hormone treatments. It could be that Speck was rewarded in prison for being such a stand-up guy. 
what? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so uh, to go back though, real quick, I I have to have a motive to um. In either in other words, you have a ring of pretty much like murder cults that are. So okay, okay, it, okay. Are doing this. So let, let let me see if I follow. There, there's uh, so you're saying there's there's an underground movement of people that did this and then uh, implicated him through uh, drugging him and putting him in the wrong place at the wrong time or getting him slightly involved and pinning it on him so that they could yeah. they could be the ones to victimize these women and and so, maybe so for whatever a, reason he he was he was all right to take the blame. I okay, mean, so so it's not like political victims. It's not necessarily, but not necessarily. I mean, he, he, this book is like such a big undertaking that it, it's a it makes it kind book. of, it makes it hard because it's like he, you know, he goes through all the history of this mind control stuff. He goes through all the organized pedophilia stuff and then all the, you know, decades of the serial killings and kind of ties it all in together. Not necessarily as some grand conspiracy, but as, uh, as I guess just there being this underworld that contains all the stuff that's interrelated and mind control pretty much ties it all together. Yeah. Just much like the operation Phoenix, where it was psychological warfare against the soldiers of either North Vietnam or the Viet Cong. This is like a psychological warfare against the American people. Right, basically, to kind of instill some kind of fear. Okay, I'm starting. I'm starting to get the whole picture yeah. now. Yeah. So there's um, people tied tied to the government that have access to these kind of um, this information or these these tactics, and they're using it for their own nefarious means to go out and rape and pillage amongst our own population, basically. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's some dark shit. Yes. And 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 he and he he talks about Charles Manson. He talks about the son of Sam murders. Uh, he does touch a little bit on the Zodiac killer, which I said a couple of shows ago, I believe the Zodiac killer to be more than one person. I think it was at least two people. But so you're basically using the cuz in the 70s Starting in the 60s and the 70s into the 80s, the serial killer stuff just exploded. Okay, so here, here's where I'm at in this case. Um, I'm I'm pretty pretty hip to the whole. Um, uh, oh, like MK Ultra stuff, mind control experiments, the the nefarious stuff that the government was willing to do to discover um, any kind of little advantage or leverage here and there. And on the other hand, I also know. Uh, how human nature is, you know, we, people are horrible. <laughs> we are horrible, horrible creatures and we do horrible things to each other and we have horrible urges and impulses. And I don't think it's that far of a leap to think that people that have this kind of power and this kind of ability um, could go to exploit it, especially people that are used to being secretive, that are used to being right. together underground, like kind of a, kind of a thing. Well, that's fascinating. I had no idea that that's where right. It, this right. book was because you know we know that Charles Manson that basically he was running a death cult right he was running an assassination cult right and so you know other uh, 
people like uh, Ed Sanders and also Adam Go Rightly, McGowan speculates the same thing. They were for hire, maybe. They were basically for hire. So um, that other words like Sharon Tate and the people that were in that house and CeeLo Drive right. were not exactly innocent, that they had some kind of underworld connections. Absolutely. And uh, that they may have also been involved in some kind of drugs are also some kind of pedophilia ring. So there's the pedophilia thing going on there too. And if you're being now, I don't skeptical, know about Sharon Tate herself, but you know, Roman Polanski's oh, got yeah. a lot of weird oh, yeah. shit and that was her husband. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and if you're skeptical about the existence of mind control, the entire Charles Manson prosecution was based upon mind control. Right. I mean, it's just because of Helter Skelter. He was able to control the minds of his followers. Yep. So, yep, and he was, and and so the so the wider idea is: was there somebody even further up controlling him? Him. Um, so and we know was, that that and he was a victim of all that child abuse. I yep. mean, and from the world of prostitution and from, uh, you know, was in that shady world with all these entertainment people, uh, who knows what else was going on. Yeah. It's yep. So he, he talks a lot about this kind of stuff and also, you know, like son of Sam is another one that was possibility of this ring of just these, you know, thrill kill murderers. And then it might've been Berkowitz just was either induced or just took the blame. Um, yeah, it's, it's scary. And it, it goes right into what we were just talking about with the smiley face yep. stuff too. Yep. You know, just this ring of people that are going around and, and killing people and getting their rocks off and some kind of weird elite obsession with death. Um, he also talks a lot about satanic cults. Uh, there's a, he talks about, uh, Henry Lee Lucas supposedly claiming, and you know, I think there's a lot you could say about Lucas, like the, you take with a grain of salt, although it is odd that George W. Bush did basically stay his execution when he wouldn't stay the woman that had convicted. Remember she had converted to Christianity and, uh, there was all this movement to not execute her. Well, they executed her, but they didn't execute Henry Lee Lucas, who said that he killed all these people, which I think a lot of that was just him trying to get publicity or stay in, stay in prison. But Henry Lee Lucas would talk about going down to this Matamoros, Mexico, and he also talks a lot about the the death cults in 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 Mexico connected to the drug trade, uh, you know, which you know, hey, Santa Muerte, right? Saint Death. Yeah. That's uh, and that that kind of stuff with Saint Death that goes straight into like because there's a lot of connections with her and also with Hecate, the goddess Hecate, and that goes straight into like Walter Bosley's work about Empire of the Will. Um, so this kind of stuff goes, goes really, really deep, um, where I have somewhat of a problem with McGowan in this book is I feel that he kind of relies a lot on satanic panic literature. Yes. Because he does talk about the McMartin preschool case and which has been one that has kind of been in many ways thoroughly debunked. Um, but who knows? 
And not enough, not enough citations. Yeah. The, the, uh, so I think that he, and he also pulls a lot from uh, Mari Terry's The Ultimate Evil, which has been, some of that is iffy. And also the satanic panic literature from the 80s and the 90s. The, the serial killer stuff to me is much more compelling, especially when he goes case by case in excruciating detail about how it looks like these guys are basically patsies for some larger group of sick individuals. However, you know, he can't, I understand that he couldn't leave that stuff out because there is something to some of that. And he, he, you know, thinks that it's uh, instrumental in a lot of the programming and mind control is ritual abuse or the use of cults and ritualistic. Right. Well, and another thing you got to remember is that, um, Serial killers have been around a lot longer than the CIA, too. Um, yeah. There's plenty of precedence for it. And and not to say that um, there couldn't be, like, an exploitative element to, like, um, you know, uh, underground, unchecked government organizations that are operating, you know, covertly that don't have, you know, the proper checks and balances that our government's supposed to be based on abusing that kind of power locally you know there's i mean that's a really interesting idea that's something i've never thought of here's an interesting part and you guys can tell me whether you think he's being paranoid or not uh, i think he wrote this book in like 2000 i think it was published in 2004 or 2005 i'm not sure so he says uh, three states seem to play a particularly prominent role in the life stories of an overwhelming number of purported serial killers california texas and florida these three states are coincidentally are not rife with satanic cult activity. They are also coincidentally are not the three points through which virtually all of the drugs trafficked through Mexico and Central and South America enter the United States. As was, pre- as was previously mentioned, two of these three points of entry, again coincidentally or not, have in recent years been under the political control of the Bush family, Florida and Texas. And as was also mentioned previously, law enforcement officials have spoken of an organized crime pipeline that moves many of the drugs entering Texas to the city of Chicago, Illinois, which could help explain the recurrent phenomena of spree and serial killers stalking that city. He also talks about a lot of serial killers. Uh, there's some serial killers that seem to be taking the blame for murders that look like they're drug-related mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I I remember he was talking about, let me find, I got some notes. Uh, He talks about how a lot of these, the actual murders themselves are like this mafia hit style. Like the the, uh, low caliber, you know, so it won't be too loud, just like a twenty-two. Right, which causes more damage to the head. Right. Because the bullet ricochets up in your brain. It goes through your brain. And get, you know, hit twice. Or the... uh, Weapons of opportunity, which is like, you know, it's, it's, I guess he cites some CIA manual that, you know, you don't want to, if you're some covert assassin, you don't want to be caught with a weapon. You want to use just whatever's around. So he says he finds a, a overwhelming number of the actual murders are usually these mafia hit style or weapon of opportunities, which is both, I guess, you know, and from the, super organized crime world and that covert military world. Right. So that's pretty weird. Pretty weird. Yeah. What other notes do you have? 
Um, let's see. He suggests that, uh, the, something called the great acid coup of 1969 might've been what some of the Manson killing Manson killings were really about. Um, he talks about the, What's that? Uh, well, I guess just some big, you know, shift in the underworld and the drug market. Mm. And maybe they're really used to, uh, to make that happen, you know, to kill the people, uh, who need to be replaced or something like that. I don't know. I wanted to look into it. That's why I wrote it down. Yeah, well, that 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 time period is really fascinating to me, just because that's, oh, yeah. that's post MK Ultra, like when after the LSD experiments, when other chemists started to like create and supply it, and it started to grow into this whole thing. Which you really need to check out his other book, then that weird scenes in the yeah, I, I really do. I'm really fascinated in that. Yeah, I think we'll we'll probably hit that one next. That whole scene, the whole everything with like Ken Kesey and you know the whole art scene in San Francisco and. Yeah, this that that's more centered on the L.A. scene on the Laurel Canyon, but it's it's really, um, it's really wild. Uh, he talks a lot about uh, the history of hypnotism and about dis- uh, dissociative states uh, being the primary way that the intelligence agencies were exploring mind control, and the same way that both uh, uh, these like abusive cults or even in prostitution, uh, the way that mind control is deployed through breaking someone into multiple personalities um, and using hypnotism in congruence with that, he thinks is like the, the, uh, the, the most effective way that this occurs if it is occurring. There's also in it, uh, there's, it's pretty much a three part book. So the first part, he talks about the, uh, pedophocracy. Was that what he, how he termed I th- it? I think so. And then this, the second part is, which is the corpus of the book is on the serial killers. And the third part is about some like miscellaneous cases, um, to deal a lot with child murder. And he talks about the Atlanta child murders. And he goes kind of ultra conspiratorial with the Atlanta child murders. Um, of course, there's a, there's there's a lot of people that believe that Wayne Williams was not that he may have killed. He was actually, I think, convicted of killing two people, which he probably actually did. One of which was his lover, and but they were both adults. He was never really convicted of killing any of the of the kids in Atlanta in the early 80s. And McGowan speculates, this is interesting. He speculates that Atlanta being the home of the CDC, they were using these pedophile rings, which a lot of these kids were associated with known pedophiles and were seen in their houses, that they were using them to test AIDS, basically, to give these kids AIDS and to see how it would spread. Jesus. Yeah. That's uh, remember, these are African American children that that they're that they're doing that. Which, you know, that's not too far within the realm of possibility when you look at things like the Tuskegee syphilis study. 
yeah. which happened much earlier. That was also an African-American men infected with syphilis. We know about that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about the, the CDC and the AIDS thing, but he does say that um, that some of the, pedo- the convicted pedophiles, they all, a lot of them died of AIDS. Um, so that could be coincidence or not. But I thought that this was interesting in regards to the smiley face stuff. And I ran, you know, we ran this by Jim Smith, who lives in Atlanta. And he thought that that there really wasn't any kind of, uh, that there wasn't a, that there wasn't a connection. But, but I thought this was an interesting statement from McGowan. According to, he's talking about a, a witness, um, he says, like Yusef Bell, Jeffrey Mathis was also last seen getting into a car described as blue by witnesses. According to another witness, Jeffrey was again in a blue car and still very much alive a couple of days later. This was just the first of many bizarre episodes that suggested that at least some of the victims were not killed immediately, but were kept alive for an indeterminate period of time following their abductions. That were other indications as well that at least some of the victims were not killed right away. Some of them were found wearing different clothing than what they had been wearing when they disappeared. And some had undigested food in their stomachs that was not consistent with the meals they were known to have eaten before their abductions. That sounds a lot like the smiley face stuff Hmm. that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was interesting that the two shows that we were going to do had some kind of weird connection to each other. (laughs) Yeah, these did tie in a lot, actually. Uh, there's also a kind of an epilogue where he talks about the John Bonet Ramsey killing. Yeah, which he talks about. His speculation is that she was actually abused and either accidentally or purposely killed at this party in Boulder, Colorado, and that she was later taken back to the house and left there for the police to eventually find. Cause there's a lot of stuff. We, the John Bonanzi case, John Bonanzi case, it is, it is it's very tabloid, <laughs> but it is very weird. Yeah. And very disturbing. And I actually saw something on the, uh, on a tabloid today. And when I was in the grocery store, I saw, uh, they were, there was something about John Bonet. We need to reopen the case now, you know? And then there's the theory that she's actually Katy Perry. Oh, Y'all have heard that one. <laughs> No, too much. Too and, much. And, yeah. Too far, Adam. That's too, <laughs> too far. Yeah, too far. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and he also talks about the Lindbergh baby and some weird, weird connections with that too. Um, so yeah, this shit goes deep. It's a pretty cool yeah. book. It's a pretty disturbing book. It's, it's been keeping me up nights and I'm glad that I'm done reading it. Yeah. No, I'm going to have to I take a little that. break from serial killers. <laughs> I, I can only imagine how he felt writing it. Well, and the serial killer stuff's bad enough, you know, just thinking, oh, God, there's monsters who do stuff like this. But then you start getting into this stuff, and it's like, wow, it really gets, yeah. get, it really gets disturbing. Yeah. This this stuff goes deep. And, you know, William Ramsey talked about, uh, uh, what did he say, uh, John D'Souza, who I guess I'm going to have to get him on to talk about some of this. He, um, he's an interesting guy. Um. He was talking about how a lot of these these guys were being the guys in the smiley face murders were being sacrificed to old entities, which again goes into kind of like Walter Bosley's stuff about Empire of the Will. 
which, you know, has all these connections about Crowley and all that. So happy stuff. <laughs> Hug your teddy bear tonight. <laughs> what do you, what do you think, Rob? Um, I thought I was going to be more skeptical coming into it, but the deeper it gets, the more I think that it's, and I will say this about a lot of these kind of cases. Um, I do believe that people in power tend to abuse power. Like, you know, that old adage, absolute power corrupts absolutely is absolutely true. Um, so if there's people out with out there with the means to do this kind of stuff to, to, um, you know, follow all these like horrible urges and use their power to, to, to do this kind of thing. I'm not saying all these cases might be that, but there, there might be something to it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's definitely a good book to like kind of sit down and speculate and, and, and look at it from a different point of view. I do feel a little sadder, sadder about the world though. No. Yeah. You want to just crawl into it. <laughs> Go to like the go go to Alaska and just hide is what you want to do. Yeah. But okay, um, I think that's it. Uh, Sir Phil, is anything did you want else you wanted to add about it? Uh, not at all. Uh, it's just so much. I I really kind of wish he would have been able to split it into a few books. It was just such an yeah. undertaking that makes it it makes it kind of hard to even review the book linearly because of that. Um, but you guys should check it out. And, uh, you know, he, he was a, he was a great one. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's, it's, when did he die? Do you know? It was pretty recently. I'm not sure. Uh, I think, uh, said that his daughter is kind of taking up the torch a little bit of, uh, well, she's an editor. I actually met her at a, uh, Southern festival books here and, uh, wanted to get a physical copy of this book from her, but we talked about weird scenes in the Canyon and stuff. But, uh, I would say if you're going to get a new copy, if anyone's going to get a physical copy, maybe try to contact her, uh, instead of going like used on Amazon or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, this book is really cool, but it is quite the undertaking and it's a lot to get around and, uh, don't expect to like read it in just a weekend or something like that. I it had to go back weeks. to it. Yeah. I had to go back to it a few times. Mm-hmm. I actually started reading it when I took Rob to the dentist office. That was like three weeks ago yeah. <laughs> and I stopped and I finished it, uh, like two nights ago. So that's how long it took me to read it. All right, guys. Um, thank you so much. And thanks to Rogan for being on for the first part of the show. And, uh, Rob, tell everybody about our Patreon. Yeah, if you want to get a little bit of extra content, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got bonus episodes and wallpapers and t-shirts and other tiers there. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe to anything, you can do a one-time donation at our website. It's conspiranormal.com. And if you want to support the show but you don't want to spend any money, you can easily do that by just a quick five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen and just tell your friends about us. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, and guys, uh, we will be taking kind of a like a two-week break while this show is being posted. I will be out in California, one of the three serial killer states. Getting some great interviews, we hope. So so please, guys, hopefully I don't run into a serial killer while I'm there. Or become one. Or become one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
the spirit of Charles Manson might infect me. So, uh, I guess, well, we, uh, at the moment, I don't know who we're going to have on, but hopefully when I'm in California, I'm going to be doing interviews. Uh, I'm already going to be hooking up with Walter Bosley and with Greg Bishop and meeting up with Adam Go Rightly. So hopefully I'll be getting, uh, getting a show out of that, uh, another Adam on the road show. So I guess, well, join us next time on Conspiranormal. Go to a happy place tonight, guys. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.